Our scripture this morning comes from a prophecy uh, found in the the 11th chapter uh, of the book of Isaiah. And it is traditionally a scripture that we uh, read or associate with Christmas, the birth of the Savior. But what we see here as well is how the Spirit of God moves and remakes creation, how new life enters uh, into creation, into the world, and into God's children uh, through the Spirit, through the movement and the activity of the Holy Spirit. And so we read uh, this prophecy from Isaiah 11, verses uh, 1 through 10. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. Do you notice the echo from what we just read in 1 Samuel 16? He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will lay down will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, the young will lay down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The people of Israel understood what Isaiah meant when he called them a stump. Now, it might sound a little bit rude, maybe unnecessarily cruel to call an entire people a stump, a dead stump, no less. But watching their nation crumble around them, they already knew the royal line that began with the shepherd's son of Jesse had lost its former glory long ago. David had protected the people from hostile neighbors, and he unified the nation in ways the first king Saul had never been able to accomplish. Solomon, David's son, took Israel even further, bringing them to the heights of worldly power and recognition. But by the time Isaiah arrived as a prophet, the rulers descended from those two legendary kings had led the people of God to the edge, and maybe even over, into catastrophe. After Solomon died, the nation split into two competing regions, each led by kings that Scripture describes with the exact same phrase— Uh, They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Nearly every king after David and Solomon, were uh, that was the description used for them. Worse yet, their failures led the people into greater spiritual rebellion, which caused the blessings of God to slow down and then eventually stop. 
The destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by Assyria in 722 uh, should have been a warning to the southern kingdom of Judah. And as prophet, Isaiah warned the, uh, warned the king of Judah that they too would face annihilation if they continued to ignore the commands of their God. But the leaders of Judah refused to listen, and Isaiah's predictions became a terrible, horrible reality. Babylon, a rising power that recently conquered Assyria, and Assyria was the country that had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, swept through Judah like a raging fire, demolishing cities, erasing their culture, taking the people to be slaves far from home, burning their existence to ash. As slaves in a foreign land, the people had little reason to hope for salvation. But then Isaiah comes with a prophecy about what God will one day do, not just for, but in and through his people. He begins, however, by recognizing everything that people have lost, which is why he calls them a stump. A stump. Eventually, Isaiah describes how the Savior will restore all that had gone wrong between God and his people, but he also understands that they had been swallowed whole by the chaos of a world overcome by sin and death. The description of the royal line as a stump reflects not only uh, their history, but how they feel about themselves, what they believe about their own future. The word uh, stump is used only three times in the Old Testament, twice in Isaiah and once in Job, and each conveys a sense of desolation, of irreversible loss. The line of Jesse isn't a tree that has fallen over in a green forest where new life might spontaneously spring forth, but it is a hollow remnant of a grand tree laid low by a forest fire. Long ago, it had been fruitful, it had been mighty, it had been powerful, it had been full of potential and promise, a symbol of God's blessing, but the axe had fallen, destroying it forever. For a nation that had lost everything, this image made sense. Their present had been stolen, their future canceled. They had no lost descendant to look for on the horizon, no promise of relief. There was no mythical King Arthur that would show up in their time of deepest need. There was no Anastasia that had, been, that had escaped the destruction. Sometimes in this life, we might feel a little bit like this too. We've all had hard days or weeks or years, maybe even seasons, where we too feel dead inside. It can take years to emerge from a traumatic experience, even longer to process the death of a beloved friend or family member. Grief, as we all know, doesn't have a timeline. It rarely considers our schedules. Sometimes it's hard to get out of bed because we're just not excited about the day uh, ahead of us. Whenever we do math at home, that's how my daughter Joanna feels. She's like, I just don't want to get out of bed. It's not fun. <laughs> On occasion, sadness and loneliness and despair falls upon us with such intensity, we experience what the 16th century poet John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. In those moments, we experience such terrible confusion and helplessness, we feel like life will never make sense or be good again. It feels like God isn't close to us at all, that he might have just walked away. 
But the metaphor Isaiah uses here doesn't just describe how the Israelites are feeling at the moment. It doesn't just describe those valleys that every person goes through. He isn't just describing the Israelites' current feelings or outlook, but the disorder of the human condition itself. Isaiah wants the people then and us today to to recognize that a life lived apart from God always leads to spiritual decay and ultimately eternal death. All of humanity is represented by this dead stump. In his novel, uh, The Moviegoer, Walker Percy describes the human condition like this. He writes, for some time now, the impression has been growing upon me that everyone is dead. It happens when I speak to people. In the middle of a sentence, it will come over me. Yes, beyond the doubt, this is death. They have died and do not even know it. At such times, it seems the conversation is spoken by machines who have no choice in what they say. They have no connection to real life. Knowing the despair that comes from living apart from God, Isaiah uses this image to illustrate how drastically God will reverse the people's condition. Not just Israel's, but all of humanity when the Messiah arrives. This dead stump, a relic of former glory, will sprout again, surpassing the dynasty of David and Solomon, but also regaining the glory humanity lost in the garden when God's presence filled every inch of creation. From this dead stump, new life emerges. One scholar says it like this, in the face of of spent hope, the prophet asserts new life will come through a Savior who will enact All that the Davidic kings had failed to accomplish. The only explanation offered for this inexplicable coming reality is the spirit of the Lord. Yahweh's creative, irresistible, authorizing breath, a force that enlivens, that gives power and energy and courage, will come with the promised Messiah and will do what the world believes is impossible. Israel may have died, Isaiah says. All of humanity might be resting under the shadow of death, but our God brings dead things back to life. Despite all the suffering they experienced, Isaiah wants them and us to understand the Spirit doesn't draw fire from barely lit embers, but cold ashes. This promise is explicitly fulfilled in Jesus, and we see that in the empty tomb. When Jesus defeats death, the Spirit of God is unleashed to remake the world and the lives of his children. A new order, a new life spreads throughout the world when Jesus rises from the dead. And Isaiah, way back uh, long before Jesus arrived, reveals how this works in us in three specific ways. The first is this. The qualities that we see in the Messiah are designed to operate in regular people like you and me. Jesus comes to live in us with the blessings of his kingdom in tow, and the Spirit helps us learn how to use them. Instead of an empty spiritual cupboard in our hearts or souls or minds, we find our our pantry full because Jesus is there to stock it. 
Theologian Andrew Purvis wrote, In union with Christ, that, what, that which is his becomes ours. His Father becomes our Father. His knowledge and love and service of the Father and to the Father become our knowledge and love and service of the Father too. Joined to the Messiah, the Spirit aligns our hearts with the heart of the Savior, giving us access uh, to the gifts that Isaiah lists, giving us access to his wisdom and understanding, his counsel and might, his knowledge and reverence of the Lord, and so much more. Of course, this transformation takes time. But the Spirit is patient, working like a diligent mechanic to restore our broken souls, to repair what we lost, to even give us things that we've never had before. But the hope Paul feels in Philippians 1.6 applies to us also when he writes, I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus plants new life in each of us. We get to share in everything that he already has. Second, the Spirit frees us from the inherent hostility of our broken world. And this, we don't just learn how not to hurt, but to cultivate a new desire to see all people Flourish. John Calvin sees the absence of enmity as a direct resolution to humanity's corruption in the garden. When the Spirit works in the faithful, he writes, there will be a blessed restoration of relationships in this world. Whence comes the brutality of nature, which prompts the stronger to seize and rend and devour with dreadful violence the weaker. The unhappy cruelty of this world is only evidence of the disorder which sprung from the sinfulness of humanity, which the Savior corrects through the Holy Spirit. From the beginning, the Lord expects his people to care about the restoration of other people. So when Cain, uh, is, when Cain asks, am I my brother's keeper? The answer for God's people is what? Yes, yes, we are the keeper of our brother. The 99th question of the Westminster Catechism reminds us that for every direct prohibition uh, found in Scripture uh, that God delivers to his people, he also expects the corresponding duty to be fulfilled too. So when God says, do not kill, he requires us to value the life of every person we meet. Our goal isn't just to refrain from hurting others, but to help everyone flourish, to lay down our hostility, to lay down our frustration, to lay down all the things that make us angry, all those things that make us frustrated about other people. Our goal uh, is to help make all things right, to help others flourish, which is also Yahweh's basic understanding of justice and righteousness, where all things are made right. And Isaiah's vision of the future, the Spirit imparts God's own compassionate nature to his children. But the most powerful signal the Savior, uh, most powerful signal that the Savior cancels the effects of sin and death is found in the remade relationship between children and venomous snakes. 
right? We see a picture of all of these animals that would normally be at each other's throats in harmony. But we also see a child hanging out and playing near the nest of a cobra, near uh, a viper's den. Even now, we might recoil a bit when we imagine a child playing with a snake that could easily kill them. Whenever I see a snake, I still get a little bit worried. I have to figure out what kind it is. Um, I don't want to kill it if it's a good snake. Um, but it still freaks me out, right, whenever you see a snake. Um, there was one on my, uh, in the garage the other day, and uh, it was not fun. I, I caught it with an oven mitt because it was in my garage. I couldn't get to my gloves, so I used an oven mitt to catch it. Um, let it loose in the woods once I figured out what it was. But we get worried if we imagine a kid playing with a snake, if we imagine an infant who cannot defend themselves playing near something that could kill them easily. But in the kingdom, Jesus establishes lions and calves will rest with one another. Wolves and lambs will lay down together and children won't worry about playing near a cobra's den or a viper's nest. In the kingdom, Jesus builds no harm will come to any creature and the very idea of destruction will fade from memory. But if we understand part of what happens in Genesis, this makes even Uh, This is even more wonderful. Part of the curse uh, in Genesis 3 is that uh, there is uh, enmity, there is uh, opposition, antagonism between uh, the the mother and her children and snakes, right? Because they will will strike at their feet and the children will crush the snake with their head. But here in God's kingdom, all of that goes away. It's made new. Third, the Spirit helps us embody a new kind of peace. The peace the Spirit establishes in His children reframes our relationship with God the Father, but also provides us with an internal purpose. Although it sounds strange in English, the peace we see throughout Scripture in both the Old and New Testament is both a noun, but it's more often used as a verb. Peace isn't just something we receive. It's not a, uh, an object, but it's an action. Like Jesus says in Matthew 5, the children of God will be known because they are peacemakers. They'll be known by their love. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus doesn't tell the disciples uh, their lives will be free from anything that might bother or worry them. He doesn't say that they will live a stress-free life. In fact, he says they will experience genuine persecution and hardship. But the peace Jesus gives his disciples and us enables us to persevere amongst the chaos because of what he achieved at the cross. Jesus declares in John 16 that he has overcome the world, which frees us to live in peace with everyone we've ever met, friends and family, but also enemies, people that we get along with and also people we uh, have friction with, people uh, whose views we share and people whose views are completely different. And the Greek overcome doesn't describe just getting over a minor obstacle, but that complete victory has been achieved. Typically, this word describes an an army conquering an enemy, but John uses this word throughout his letters, encouraging believers in uh, in his first letter to remember that you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
The peace of God isn't a defensive position of retreat, but a command to move forward and establish his kingdom and the chaotic world in which we live. In this way, Isaiah declares to us a completely unexpected miracle. The Spirit goes into the broken world and brings new life from dead things. He establishes something new in us, but also through us. You and me who were once dead in our sins, become fountains of living water when the Spirit lives in us. Planted in the most routine places along the pathways of our specific lives, our God asks us to embody the gifts of the Savior to a lost and broken world. The new sprout of grain that breaks through our own dead hearts points to a new posture toward this broken, irrational, antagonistic world. We're not called to float through a mundane existence, much less just endure the weight of our fears and anxieties. We aren't designed to passively react to the chaos either, powerless to bring change. Rather, the Spirit invites us into a life of extreme abundance, not only for our own spiritual restoration, but the redemption of the whole world. Paul Pastor, uh, he's a a Christian writer, uh, says this, when Jesus sent his followers out to preach and heal, he pulled them close to him and in a sacramental moment breathed on them. This act signified that he was passing his spirit to them, signifying the life of the creator and recreator going in to the once dead sprout of a new humanity. This new life was a gift and a blessing given for the special work he'd asked them to do, a forecast of greater things to come. So where the, ancient, where the king of the ancient line had healed, now he called his friends, his siblings, his followers to heal too. They were to go out as emissaries of the king, bearing the same power of kingship that was on their leader. In this way, our very lives become a public testimony, what Isaiah calls a banner for all the nations to witness the transforming grace of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3 that you ourselves are our letter to the world. You are our letter to the community, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on your hearts. The picture Isaiah paints isn't a prophecy to be fulfilled someday in the future, but lived out in our regular lives. The new life Jesus gives is designed to start working today. So no matter where you are or what you have gone through, whether you feel barely or alive or half dead, whether you are simply coasting along, remember that we who were once dead are now filled with new life. We are filled with the Spirit. So let us step into this new life together so the whole world might know our God brings the dead to life. Hallelujah. Amen.